I'm Chad Roberts, and you're listening to Awaken to Grace. Today, we are in Revelation chapter 19, and we're talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Have you ever wondered what exactly the marriage supper of the Lamb is? Have you wondered when it takes place, how long it lasts, and what the real meaning of it is? Well, today, we're going to lay it all out. We're going to study God's Word together. We're going to start in Revelation 19. We're going to move over to John chapter 14. We're going to go back to Matthew 25, and we're going to thread the Scriptures together, and we're going to understand God's Word. Have you been to the Awakened to Grace website in a while? If not, check it out right now, www.awakenedtograce.com. Read my bio, How I Went Blind and Lost My Eyesight, Check out our online store and the hundreds of free resources that are at your fingertips. Well, I hope you enjoy today's teaching on this broadcast of Awakened to Grace. Revelation chapter 19 today. How many of you have often wondered what the marriage supper of the Lamb is really all about? I would ask you to raise your hands, but you know I'm blind, so I'll not do that today. I did that last Sunday, and a brother in our church is a retired Navy SEAL. And uh, when he and I go to lunch, we go to lunch often, I walk a little taller when I walk beside him. I don't, mind who I, I don't mind if I bump into somebody when I'm with him. But that old Navy SEAL pointed his finger in my chest after church last Sunday and said, Preacher, I wish you'd quit tricking me. <laughs> I couldn't tell if it was a suggestion or a threat. So. so I'll not ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have wondered before, what is the marriage supper of the Lamb? What does it represent? Who will be there? How long is it? Why? What's the purpose of it? We're going to answer that with the Bible today. And what a special thing. I hope this becomes very special to you. What is the midnight cry? We're going to answer that today using the Bible. So Caleb, brother, take us through Revelation 19, beginning with verse 1. Verse 1 says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. All right, let's pause right there. So I'm going to try to give you many things to write down today. How many of you are going to be a scribe today and you're going to take a lot of notes? <laughs> Don't feel like you got to get it all. You can go back on the app and, and, and catch it again. But let me give you several things to note just right off the bat. Now remember, if you really want to understand the book of Revelation, you look for patterns. It is when you gain a great appreciation for the structure of the book. It will all come together and make sense. One of the great patterns that we've studied through walking through the book of Revelation is this important phrase, after this. We were first introduced to it in chapter 4. And what did we say about the phrase after this? In the Greek, it is metatauda. What a great phrase, metatauda. 
And what it means is a transition is happening in the book. It literally means after these events or after these things. What we studied last week in chapter 17 and 18 is such a major ordeal to God. He's going to touch on it in just the next couple of verses. But what happened in the fall of Babylon is such a huge deal to God. And now John transitions again by saying, Metatauta, after this, after the fall of Babylon, now here's the next scene. I just picture the aged John. He's over 90 years old when he writes Revelation. What do we call him? John the, the Revelator. Because God revealed to him. I think that old John just rubbed his eyes. Can you imagine all that he saw? And now, Metatauta, after this, a new transition. And now we're going to go, remember the scenes of Revelation go from earth to heaven, to earth, to heaven, to earth, to heaven. Now we've been on the earth last week at the fall of Babylon. Now it shifts back to heaven. And what do we see? We see the saints of God. And what are we, the church, what are we proclaiming? Hallelujah! Do you remember, some of you we remember, I don't, I don't remember if it was last year or the year before. Remember we did a sermon series called Church Words? Anybody remember that series? We studied the word hallelujah. We studied the word amen. We studied the word glory. If you want to take notes, just note this. The word hallelujah, hallel, this is transliterated out of the Hebrew, out of the Old Testament. The word hallelujah, by the way, it's a universal word. Do you realize that? It's the same word in every language and dialect on the earth. You know why it's a universal word? Because it's an eternal word. And the word hallelujah is only mentioned 28 times in the Bible. 24 times in the book of Psalms. And what's called the Hallel Psalms. And only four times in the New Testament, all four times in chapter 19 of Revelation. What do we say God's favorite number is? Seven. Very good. And how many times is hallelujah in the Bible? 28 times, four sets of seven, the fourth, the last fourth being in chapter 19. Now, here we are around the throne of God. We're shouting hallelujah over the fall of Babylon. Let's watch the scene unfold. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Amen. Now, this is fascinating. Say amen if you're with me right now. I don't want you to miss this. Now, the 24 elders. Oh, let me say just real quick. What did it say about God's judgments? They are just. Remember, when you and I are in heaven watching the tribulation unfold, we're not going to be there saying, oh, God, no, please don't do this. Oh, God, please hold back. Right? No, we are going to say just. 
are the judgments of God. Scripture re- reinforces that yet again here in chapter 19. Now, we see the four living creatures who we've seen throughout the entire study. What did we say? Every time events happen on the earth, it's the four living creatures that speak. Every time events happen in heaven, who speaks of them? The 24 elders. Here's what I want you to note in your notes. This is fascinating to me. This is the last time the 24 elders are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Oh, I get so excited when I think about this. Now, remember back in chapter 4 when we began all things, or I'm sorry, things to come, when we began our study, (coughs) who did we say the 24 elders were? Do you remember? The church, exactly. The church is the 24 elders in heaven. Even in today, on the earth, in the church age, who represents leadership in the church? Elders. And in heaven, these 24 elders represents the untold number of born-again, blood-bought New Testament saints from the day of Pentecost to the rapture of the church. Do you remember in chapter 4, John speaks of the 24 elders, but in chapter 6, when John is introduced to tribulation saints, those who are martyred for their faith during the seven-year tribulation period, do you remember John does not know them? The angel, I'm sorry, the, the, the 24 elder asked him, one of the elders says, who are these? And John says, sir, you, you know. In other words, John said, I have no idea. Why did John not recognize the tribulation saints? Because he's not part of them. He's part of the 24 elders. He's part of the church, which the Bible calls the mystery of God. And so here's what I want you to understand about this part of the text. In a moment, we're going to be introduced to the bride of Christ, who is what? The church. But here's what I want you to see in Revelation. Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3 is all about the church and the church age. Then the Laodicean church age comes. And then you get to chapter 4, Metatauta. After this, the trumpet sounds. The harpazo is called up. And now what is the next scene in chapter 4? Chapter 4, in my view, is the greatest transition in the book. And what do we see? We see all the saints of God around the throne of God, friends. That is the rapture of the church taking place. And from chapter 3, if you've paid attention through our study, from chapter 3 at the end of Laodicea to chapter 19 with the bride of Christ, the church is never mentioned again through the entire seven-year tribulation period. You have tribulation saints, people who are saved and martyred during the tribulation, but they're not the church, they're not the elders. From chapter 4, it's the 24 elders... And we see them in nearly every chapter going forward. Every event that takes place in heaven, it is the 24 elders that speaks of it. And now we come to chapter 19 and the 24 elders, who is the church, us, we worship God for his just deeds and his just acts. And this is the last mention 
of the 24 elders in the book of Revelation. Do you know why? Because what is coming next is the bride of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Is everyone on the same page with me? Let's continue, please. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Wow. Can you imagine what those garments are going to look like and feel like? Bright, pure, clean, white linen. And what is the linen made of? This is an idiom that the Holy Spirit uses. What idiom does he say the white linen is made of? The righteous deed of the saints on the earth. Now, that's fascinating. Do you know what I believe Scripture is saying right here? I want you to really think about this. How well you live in this life on the earth is how well-dressed you are in heaven. Think about that. In other words, everything you do right now in the name of the Lord Jesus, everything that you do as righteous acts before God, do you know what you're doing? You're threading your heavenly garments. Right now, you are threading your heavenly garments. I want you to think about that for a moment. How you live down here affects how you'll be dressed up there. That's why, my friend, you should not grow weary in your doing well. This is why you will reap if you faint not. And there's some of you, let me tell you, you used to serve God. You used to love God. You used to do things for God. You used to be engaged in things for God. But somewhere down the road, you've lost your first love. You've left it. Somewhere down the road, the cares of this life have choked out the seed of God's word. Somewhere along the line, you've gotten busy, you've gotten distracted, you've gotten hurt, you've gotten offended. Whatever's happened in the past is the past. And what are you doing for the Lord today? Are you engaged? Are you serving God I don't care how whatever church treated you. I don't care what pastor let you down. I don't care who hurt you or who offended you. What are you doing for the Lord? Jesus Christ, not for man, but for the Lord. And how you live down here is how well-dressed you'll be up there. Don't let anyone steal your thread. Don't let anyone steal your purpose. Don't let anyone steal your joy. You will reap if you don't faint. So don't grow weary in your doing good. Can we say amen to that? Amen. And so John watches this and it was given to the bride. How important is the dress of a bride? That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? And so John watches this unfold. And it was given to her. It was granted to her. Clean and white and pure. Radiant linen. And it was the righteous deeds on the earth. Now, 
Let's go back for a moment. Let's, let's do a detour to John chapter 14. I want you to turn there for it with me. If you and I are going to understand the marriage supper of the Lamb, you and I have to understand ancient Jewish weddings. We won't grasp it if we don't go back and understand this. I love that it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because who are we introduced to? Oh, 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 I just, I love God's word, don't you? Who are we introduced to in chapter 5? The Lamb as though he was slain. And do you remember John weeps convulsively because no one was found worthy to open the scroll? And who was worthy? The lamb. Say amen if you're with me right now. The lamb was worthy. Who did we say the lamb linked to? You go back in the Old Testament to the story of Ruth and Boaz. What a remarkable love story that is. What a love story, Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a Gentile. She was not a Jew. But Boaz became her what? Kinsman redeemer. And he took a Gentile bride in Bethlehem. Oh, Christ, the Lamb of God, For those whose names are written where? In the Lamb's book of life has arranged the marriage supper of the Lamb where he is going to take a Gentile bride, the church. Why? Because he's our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Now, let's go back and let's understand for a moment ancient Jewish weddings. Because when you understand ancient Jewish weddings, it opens your eyes to John 14, to Matthew 25, and then ultimately Revelation 19. There were, again, if you're going to take notes, note this. There were three stages to a Jewish wedding. There was first what you and I would call the engagement stage. Now, an engagement in these days was a betrothal, and it wasn't an engagement as we do in our culture today, okay? When I proposed to Sadie, I had a box with a ring in it. I got down on one knee, shaking like a leaf, with my palms sweaty as they could be, and nearly passing out. But what happens? You propose... Hopefully, she says yes, which Sadie did. And then what do you do next? You plan the wedding. You set the date, right? And in our case, 36 hours later, we were married. No, I'm kidding. It was a few months. You propose, you set a date, and then you go, and then you get married. Jewish weddings were a very, very intricate and long process. So let's understand it quickly. Three stages to a Jewish wedding. You first had the engagement stage. Now, the father of the bridegroom would enter into a contract with the father of the bride. And typically they would be very young. 
They would not consummate their marriage for a very long time because it was a process. Two young people would become basically engaged. But see, the engagement wasn't like our engagement. So when we hear that Joseph and Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the Gospels, when we hear that they were betrothed and that when Mary ends up pregnant, supernaturally, what is Joseph's first reaction? Divorce. Well, in our Western ears, we're going, well, how can he divorce her? They're not married. They're just simply engaged. But see, no, an engagement in Jewish culture was a legally binding contract. And if one broke that contract with infidelity, even though you had not consummated the marriage, you had to go through a divorce. And Joseph's first reaction was he was going to divorce her. She broke the contract. And so understand the betrothal period. What would happen is a father and mother of the bridegroom would enter into contract with the father and mother of the bride. Back then, marriages were arranged. As a matter of fact, I have friends in Pakistan who've been here and preached in our pulpit many times. In their Pakistani culture, you know, they arranged their marriages. Their marriage was arranged from young children. Their children now, they are arranging their marriages. Well, to my Western ears, that sounds crazy. But now that I have kids, I go, you know, it's not that bad of an idea. <laughs> they may be onto something. So, so we're talking about legally binding contract. And they would enter into a contract and the father would give a guarantee. He would make a down payment. It would be a promise. Friends, do you know what the book of Ephesians tells us? We are guaranteed. We are sealed. We are promised with the precious Holy Spirit. Friends, right now you and I are engaged to Jesus Christ. And what's the down payment of the Father? What's the promise of the Father? What's the guarantee of the Father? The indwelling Holy Spirit of God. We're sealed with a promise, amen? We are spoken for. We belong to Jesus. See, that's why when you allow sin into your life, oh, what a tragedy. Because you are to be pure. You are to be undefiled. You are to be the bride of Jesus Christ. That's why it's such a big deal. Sin, listen, you're in an affair today. You can't say, well, I'm not hurting nobody. You can't say, well, no one will ever know. Let me tell you, Jesus Christ, who you're betrothed to. Now, the second step. <clears throat> Once a couple is engaged, they're betrothed, then it's going to be a long process because you know what the, husband, what the bridegroom does? He goes and he begins to prepare for his family. And you know how he prepares? If he doesn't have a skill set for life, he learns a skill so that he can support his wife and family. But here's what he does. He builds on 
to his father's house. It was called the bridal chamber. And in those days, in those cultures, families lived together, and he would take his father's house, and he would build and add on to it for he and his bride and his future family. If you enjoyed today's broadcast and would like to hear more great content, you can always download our free mobile app, Awaken to Grace, where you can request prayer, find sermons, articles, blogs, music, podcast, as well as support us financially. You can also visit either of our websites at www.preachingchristchurch.com or www.awakentograce.com for more information about our church or our resource ministry. Thank you for listening to Awaken to Grace.